Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. This is Anthony Buzzard inviting you to investigate further Jesus' favorite topic, what he called the gospel about the kingdom of God. We've been inviting you to look at some of the most basic questions one can ask about the New Testament. You may think you have the answers to these questions, but there's never any harm in reviewing them and seeing them perhaps from a slightly different angle. We're concerned to point out that Jesus was the first preacher of the gospel, although the gospel of the kingdom, the saving gospel, has its roots in the Hebrew Bible even. We learn from Paul in the book of Galatians that the gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham. Abraham was therefore a Christian believer before the time of Christ. He believed in faith, in the coming of the Messiah, and in the subsequent coming of the kingdom of the Messiah. And he obviously expected to be resurrected one day to join the faithful of all the ages in the coming kingdom of God. That's known as the faith of Abraham. In Romans chapter 4, you'll find a couple of references there to the faith of Abraham and the faith of our father Abraham. And so the Christian faith is indeed the Abrahamic faith. It's based on the covenant of promises made to Abraham and brought to fulfillment at least partially up to this present time, not fully yet, but brought to fulfillment, finally, as it will be in the future, through Jesus Christ, whom we believe to have been Jesus of Nazareth, the promised Messiah. That's our Christian position. It's a Christianity based on the prophecies made in the Old Testament about the coming of the Messiah and the covenant made with Abraham and built upon that the covenant made with David in Second Samuel 7. Let me give you that brief outline once again. If we want to trace the basis of the teaching of Jesus in the Hebrew Bible, what we unfortunately call the Old Testament because it's not old and passé, it's very much relevant to Christians today. If we want to trace that teaching of the gospel of the kingdom, which came from Jesus, to the Hebrew Bible, we should start in Genesis 12. That's a place where God made a new start after the somewhat disastrous chapters of Genesis 1 through 11. In Genesis chapter 12, and particularly in those first four verses of Genesis 12, we have a brand new start. As God dealt with a single family, Abraham and his immediate relatives, and called them out of Ur of the Chaldees to a land unseen by Abraham, a land to which he proceeded in faith, in faith in God's promises, and that land, of course, was the land of Canaan. From then on, we know the story of the development of the tribes of Israel as descendants of Abraham. The life of Abraham we can place approximately 2000 B.C. And 1000 years later, we come to the life of the famous and distinguished king of Israel, King David. Now to David, the promises of Abraham were confirmed and added to. In 2 Samuel 7, we have the very celebrated covenant made with King David. In 2 Samuel 7, you'll read that Nathan the prophet was sent to David, and he was told through the prophet that God was going to make a solemn covenant with him as king. And God promised to David in 2 Samuel 7 that there would one day arise a famous descendant of David who would be the Messiah of Israel, a king with a permanent dynasty. Now Solomon, of course, was the immediate descendant of David. 
and we're all well aware of his successes and later tragic failures. And the Old Testament goes on to recount how the successors of David on the throne of David in varying ways failed to measure up to the marvelously high standard set by David. Although, of course, we realize that David had some extremely low points in his career, but he was able to recover from these and went on then to justify God's faith in him. Now, the throne of David came to an end when the people of Judah were finally exiled under King Nebuchadnezzar in about 586 B.C. At that point, the throne of David failed to exist in Jerusalem. And yet there was this promise to which all of the faithful in Israel adhered with an extraordinary tenacity that one day that throne of David was going to be restored because they knew from Second Samuel 7, the covenant made with David, that there was to be a complete permanence about the throne of David. It was going to last forever. And so naturally they looked forward to the time coming when there would arise in Israel that distinguished member of the house of Judah, the royal family of David, who would indeed be worthy of sitting on the throne permanently, on the throne of David permanently, and ruling in a worldwide kingdom. That, in brief, is the messianic hope which underlies our New Testament, which forms the essential background to an intelligent reading of our New Testament. When we then come to Luke chapter 1, we find that this messianic hope is still beating in the hearts of the faithful in Israel. And Gabriel, the archangel, comes to Mary and announces that she is going to conceive a son supernaturally. And that son is going to be, by divine conception, by divine begetting, the Son of God. You'll find that in Luke 1, verse 35. But three verses earlier, Gabriel announces that this son, who is to be begotten in the womb of Mary supernaturally, is to be the one to whom God will give the throne of his father David, and he will rule over the house of Jacob forever. There we have an encapsulation of the whole ultimate career of Jesus, exactly what we'd expect then as one who is destined to fulfill the messianic promises of the Hebrew Bible. God indeed has been entirely faithful to that promise, the promise contained in the covenant to Abraham of the land and the distinguished progeny, and the covenant confirmed also then in Second Samuel 7, the covenant with David. On those great building blocks, our New Testament Christian faith is built. And it's essential if we're going to understand the unfolding drama that God is working out through these precious members of the royal household of David that we grasp the underlying meaning of Abraham's covenant, the covenant God made with Abraham, and David's covenant, the royal throne covenant found in Second Samuel 7. It is about those covenants and their coming to fulfillment in Jesus that the famous charismatic songs of Mary and Zechariah and Anna the prophetess are sung, and Simeon also, of course, who blessed the Christ child. They're concerned then and excited about God being so faithful to his promises and bringing the Messiah into the world supernaturally conceived in the womb of Mary, his mother. Now, with that in mind, then, when we come to the opening of the career of Jesus, it's hardly surprising to find him announcing as his gospel that the good news 
of the kingdom is this. The kingdom is at hand, and we're to repent, turn around, and reorientate our life to this new great fact of the future that the kingdom of God is coming. Indeed, we're to pray for the coming of that kingdom in the famous prayer, Thy kingdom come. Joseph of Arimathea was still waiting faithfully for the kingdom of God even after the death of Jesus. That must prove then that the kingdom of God had not come with the ministry of Jesus. It had been announced, certainly. It had been anticipated. And the power of the kingdom, the signs of the kingdom, had been demonstrated in the ministry of Jesus, but the kingdom itself, properly speaking, had not yet arrived. And so the faithful are still to this day praying, Thy kingdom come, which is the equivalent of praying for the second coming of Jesus. We're asking God to send back his son, this time to be the conquering Messiah who will indeed take up his rightful throne over the house of Jacob in Jerusalem, sitting upon the restored throne of David. It was about that great fact of the future which is going to affect the entire world that the disciples asked their famous last question of Jesus just before he ascended to his father to await at the right hand of the father his ultimate triumph over the world and the establishment and fulfillment of all the great prophecies attached to the messianic promise in the Hebrew Bible. And so the disciples said to Jesus in Acts 1.6, Is this now the time for you to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now that, of course, was the right question to ask, the natural question to ask of the Messiah as he departed. It was obvious to them at this stage that the death and resurrection of Jesus had not achieved the messianic promise in full. It had not achieved the re-establishment of the throne of David in Israel. Now, it was fair then for the disciples to ask the question, the right question, has the time now arrived, they said, for you to take up your position and ascend to the throne of David in Jerusalem to restore the kingdom to Israel, Acts 1.6. Now, that question was a plain and simple one. Jesus did not for one moment discount it. Not for one moment did he say, that's the wrong question, you've got the wrong idea about the kingdom, there will be no restoration of the kingdom of Israel. On the contrary, he accepted the question. It wasn't a question of whether the kingdom of God would be restored to Israel. It was simply a question as to when that event would happen. And so in Acts 1.7, Jesus replied by saying to the disciples, it's not for you to know the times and seasons in regard to this restoration of the kingdom to Israel, but you're going to receive power and you're going to be witnesses to that kingdom, first in Judea and then in Samaria and ultimately to the ends of the earth. And so there came then to existence the great commission that Jesus had promised in Matthew 28, that the apostles were to go into the entire world and, note this carefully, to teach the world and to make disciples based on the teaching, all the teaching, in fact, that Jesus had given to them. So what we're seeing here, then, is a relaying of the faith as Jesus preached it throughout the whole wide world. Every word of Jesus, every teaching of Jesus is precious as it was given to the church and needs to be told to the entire world as a warning and witness of the coming of the glory of the kingdom in the future. 
Now, I think you'll see from this outline of God's great unfolding drama in regard to the kingdom that it's essential that we not muddle the future with the present. The kingdom of God was not established in the ministry of Jesus. Otherwise, why would he ask us to pray, Thy kingdom come? The kingdom of God had not come, properly speaking, even after the death of Jesus. If it had come, why then in Mark 15 would Joseph of Arimathea still be waiting for the kingdom of God? And the kingdom of God did not come at the ascension of Jesus. That's proven by the fact that in Acts 1, verses 5 to 7, the coming of the Spirit is to be within a few days, but the coming of the kingdom and its restoration to Israel is to be in the future at a time unknown. Those verses, Acts 1, verses 5 through 7, must demonstrate that the coming of the Spirit at the ascension of Jesus is positively not the event of the coming of the kingdom. Those are clearly distinguished by Luke in this foundational chapter, Acts 1, where Luke, brilliantly as always, uses this final conversation between Jesus and the disciples to tell us in the plainest terms that the restoration of the kingdom is yet in the future at a time unknown. But the coming of the Spirit, that's to say the foretaste and the down payment and the guarantee of the future kingdom, is to come within a few days' time. That's an essential distinction which will throw a great deal of light on your Bible study and help to clarify the whole issue of the kingdom. Join us again as we continue to probe Jesus' favorite topic, the good news about the kingdom of God.